thanks, guy. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good. All right, how many, uh, how many baseball fans do we have in here? Like you'd say, hey, that is my sport, baseball. All right, so just a few of you guys. So in my family right now, in the Tarno family, baseball rules the house in a, in a really, really good and healthy way. I just, as a, I've got two kids. I've got my wife, Jackie, and two little boys. I've got a first grader and a kindergartner. And like my goal as a father, honestly, is just to impart the three Bs to my boys, which is a love for the Bible, a love for baseball, and a love for brewed coffee. So like if by the time they leave to go to college, they love those three Bs, I will feel like I have been a wild success as a dad. But anyway, baseball has been ruling the home for about the past year. It really is kind of following when the Rangers turned their season around last year. Uh, if you guys, Ranger fans, you remember the beginning of the season last year was not good, and then they ended up winning the division. And so we watch a lot of baseball, watch a lot of baseball. It's like a family activity. My wife likes it. Uh, we, all, we all do it. It's, it's really, it's, it's a lot of fun. So because we watch a lot of baseball, and I've got two boys, that means we play a lot of baseball as well. And so what's really uh, interesting to me, not too surprising, and those of you who have young kids, you know how this goes, if little boys and even little girls watch heroes on a television screen and watch these guys play baseball, then when they go out and play baseball, what do they do? They go out and they try to imitate what they just saw on the screen. And so my boys, it's really funny, as we started watching the Rangers, they have kind of latched on to who some of their favorite players are. And so when we go out there and play, my oldest, Jake, and my youngest, Joshua, they both try to emulate what they see on the screen. And so let me show you my oldest son's uh, this is his batting stance, okay? So let's, uh, let's put up the first picture up there. So that is my oldest son's batting stance. That's Adrian Beltre, the uh, soon-to-be Hall of Fame third baseman who is an absolute joy to watch. And if you are not a baseball fan, just watch a game and watch this guy play. It is, it is a joy. Nobody has more fun playing baseball than Adrian Beltre. So anyway, that is the exact way I start. I start pitching to my son in the backyard, and I realize he has this kind of this closed stance. He puts the helmet on kind of low, and he stands up there. And I'm like, where did you get that? Because I, I, I didn't teach him that. And I'm like, that's Beltre. That's what you're trying to do. Are you trying to act like Adrian Beltre? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, that's great. If you can hit like him, that's awesome. And so, uh, so he's out there and he's trying to act like, like Beltre. That's what he does when he's out there playing, does it in his games. And he sees Beltre on the screen and that's what he tries to act like. Now, my youngest son, Joshua, this is what his batting stance looks like. I'll put up the next one. That's the rookie phenom, Nomar Mazzara. So he didn't, he didn't really pick this up last year. He picked it up this year because Nomar came up and started playing for the Rangers this year. But that's what Joshua looks like, except Joshua's right-handed, uh, not, uh, not a lefty. But, but Joshua's stance is very wide open like that, like Nomar's. And then when the pitch comes, then he steps forward and tries to swing at it. And so that's, that's what they do. They watch they watch their friends, or, or it's not their friends. They wish they were their friends. They watch these guys on the screen. And then when they go out there, they just try to act act like their favorite players. And what, what's interesting to me, and I, and I know, like you guys know this, but my boys don't get this yet, that, that like Beltre and Mazzara did not become stars by simply performing and, and behaving in a certain way in a game. Beltre and Mazzara did not become a star just because they were able to hit the ball at a big moment in a game. The reason that Beltre and Mazzara have become stars, the reason they have reached the pinnacle of being a baseball player, they've reached major league baseball status. The reason they've been able to do that is not because they've been behaving a certain way in a game. The reason that they got to that stage is because they adopted a lifestyle that was conducive to training and preparation and practice. Like my, my boys, what they see, they see performance on the screen. 
They see a performance in a big moment on the game. They see all that performing. What my boys don't see is they don't see all the practice that Beltre and Mazzara have done for their entire life. My boys see the big moments. What they don't see is they don't see all the small moments that prepare them for those big moments. And I think we all, like, we all get that. We know that's the way it works. We know it's the way it works with professional athletes. We know that's the way it works with artists. We know that's the way it works with writers. That's the way it works with singers. That's the way it works with musicians. I think we all inherently get that idea that if you wanna be excellent in a craft, you don't just behave on the spot in the moment like somebody who is excellent in that craft. If you wanna be excellent at a, at a craft, you're gonna have to practice. You're gonna have to put in the work to be able to perform in that moment. And I think, I think we, all, we all understand that inherently. We, we get that. But what I think we fail to remember sometimes, what I think we fail to remember sometimes is that principle of the way we practice is the way we're gonna play, that principle also applies to our spiritual life. It also applies to our relationship with God. And so here, here's the deal. Here's the deal is that you and I, we have no hope no hope of being able to act like Jesus in the big moments of life if we don't also if we don't also try to act like Jesus in all the small moments of life you and i have no hope of being able to forgive the way Jesus forgave you and i have no hope of being able to turn the other cheek no hope of being able to uh, go the extra mile, no hope of being able to love the people around us to be able to lead in the way that we want to lead we have no hope of being able to do that and to be able to perform and behave in those big moments if we're not also adopting Jesus's total lifestyle, the way he lived in the small moments as well as the big moments. And so I start with all that this morning because as, as you guys are embarking on this semester, an eight or nine week study of the disciplines, that's the reason that we're gonna be talking about the disciplines. The disciplines are this, they are just, Kyle alluded to it a little bit here in the introduction. The disciplines are just these practical ways, these really simple things that you can do, these practical ways that you can live like Jesus in all of life, live like Jesus in the small moments. So hopefully, hopefully when we face big moments, we'll also be able to act like Jesus there as well. And so these, these disciplines are things that you see, like if you read through the gospels and you look at Jesus's life, this is the way he lived. The way he lived, like in between all of those big moments, those big miracle, miraculous type moments, this is just the way, this was Jesus's lifestyle. And you see, as you, as you read through the gospels, you just see some simple practices of what he did every day or on a regular basis. You see uh, his command of scripture. You see the fact that he memorized scripture. He, he had hidden scripture in his heart. So there's reading scripture, there's memorizing scripture. You see him praying. You see him fasting. You see him uh, being alone. You see him being silent. You, you see all of these things, all of these disciplines. This is the way Jesus lived. And so these, these, are, these are really, these are activities that you and I are gonna, going to engage in. The disciplines are things that we're gonna be able to do in the small moments so that hopefully we can act like Jesus in the big moments as well. That we can forgive and we can love and we can lead and we can turn the other cheek and we can go the extra mile. It's this, this training that we're gonna be able to do so that we can perform and that we can act when we really need to. To do the right thing when the right thing needs to be done. Now let me be really clear. This has nothing to do with salvation. 
These aren't activities that you do to please God in, in the way of like trying to earn favor with him. This isn't the way you make it to heaven. Simply put, these disciplines, this is just, just practice for godly living. Training for godly living. And so that's, that's what we're gonna do. So, so this morning, as I can just try to set you guys up as you, as you embark on this study, what I wanna do is I just wanna give you guys three reminders. Three simple reminders about, uh, about the disciplines. And if you've got your books there, you can write this on the cover. These little, these three reminders that things that you'll need to probably remind yourself maybe every day as you go through this study or at least every week when you come back in this room and you hear a bunch of other people start to talk about all of these other disciplines. And so that's what I want to do with our time uh, together uh, here this morning. And so we'll do that and we'll kind of jump around to some other scriptures as we go through this. So let's, let's jump into this first uh, reminder that I've got for us. So let me, let me start off this first one by just kind of asking a question. And those of you guys that are bold, just yell out, what do you think of when you think of the word discipline? Like what comes to mind? What are some words that come to mind? What's that, hard? Hard, okay, what else? What's that? Spanking, okay, yep, there's a father of kids right there, all right. So what else? What are, what are some other words that come to mind when you think of discipline? Consistent, what was that? Love, good. All right, what else? All right, yep. Anybody think of the word fun? No, thank you, Rob Berry. No, like when I think of the word discipline, that, that to me just sounds like a beating of the highest order. Like that sounds like zero fun. It sounds like burden. It sounds boring. It sounds constraining. It sounds un-American, right? Like, no, we are not gonna be disciplined here in this country. We do whatever it is that we wanna do. It sounds like the worst thing possible. And so if you guys are anything like me and you come into this study where we're like, hey, we're going to look at disciplines, it's like, well, why don't we just study how to be really boring? Like if, if that's our mentality, the first thing that we're going to have to do if we're going to embark upon the study of the disciplines is we're going to have to kind of redefine that word. We're going to have to think differently about that word because the way you and I think about disciplines is really going to determine how all in we are in trying to live like Jesus lived. The way we think about it has a really, really big deal. Let me just share this little story. So one of the most disciplined things that my wife and I ever did, ever did we've been married uh, about 12 and a half years. When we first got married, we had $120,000 in student loan debt. And I was a full-time seminary student and she was working for a nonprofit. We were paying more in minimum payments on our debt than we were paying in rent. It was like we had this vacation home with no home, okay, is what, is what it was like. It's like we had this second mortgage or something like that. And so anyway, we had, uh, we had made this decision that we wanted to get out of that debt sooner rather than later. And so uh, I dropped out of seminary. I went back into accounting. I was an accountant before I went into seminary and ministry. So I went back into accounting. She left the nonprofit world. We set this budget. And, and our goal in setting the budget was to take as much money as possible and throw it at the debt so that we could get out of debt as soon as possible. And so we were just, I mean, we were looking at every category with a fine-tooth comb, trying to get as many dollars to go towards debt as we possibly could. So we're living by this budget, and it felt constraining in the beginning. I mean, in the beginning, you talk to your friends, and your friend, like, friends are like, oh, we're going on vacation. And what, what my wife and I kept saying, we'd, we'd hear our friends talk about that, and we'd get jealous. And, and we just kept saying to ourselves, oh, we can't do that because we're paying off debt. We talk about our friends that are going to fancy restaurants. Oh, we can't do that because we're paying off debt and we don't have any extra money. Or you, you hear people talk about buying a home for the first time. Oh, we can't do that because we, we've got this. Or we go walk around the mall. Oh, I can't buy that. And so our, our mentality in the beginning was so discouraging because we looked at everything and all we saw was what we couldn't do. But then there was this shift that took place shortly after, like a few months after, where we started to realize, you know what? 
No, we can do any of that stuff. Like we could, like if we wanted to, we could take that, those dollars that were thrown at debt and we could not throw it at debt and we could throw it at a vacation if we wanted to. We can do that. Like nobody, nobody is forcing us to pay off this debt at the, at the pace in which we were trying to pay it off. We could go buy all those clothes if we wanted to. We could go to those restaurants if we wanted to. We could do, do something around the house if we wanted to, but we're choosing not to. We could, we could. It's not that we can't, we could do it, but we're choosing not to. And that, that shift in mentality there of just going, hey, yes, this discipline is taking us somewhere that we wanna go made all the difference in the world. And we were able to stay on that path. And by the grace of God, we were able to pay all that off in a little, little under four years able to pay off all of that debt. And so that, that, that mentality plays a big, a really, really big role in the way that we're gonna think about disciplines. And so if we continue to think about disciplines as a burden, we're gonna struggle. We're gonna struggle. But scripture is really, really clear, guys. Scripture is really, really clear that when we work hard, when we're disciplined, it brings a benefit. It's not a burden. There's a benefit to this. And so let's look at this. Proverbs 14, 23, look at this. All, all hard work brings a profit. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So this is, you know, the Proverbs are full of these principles that, that you can apply to a bunch of different parts of your life. And so this certainly would, would apply to financial type things. When we work hard, we're gonna earn a paycheck. And if we don't work, we're not gonna earn a paycheck and we're gonna be impoverished. But you can also apply this to other areas of life where just this idea that when we work hard, it brings a profit, meaning it brings a benefit into our life. So a disciplined lifestyle is gonna bring something very, very positive to, to our life, but if, if we just talk about it or if we just hope that we're gonna change, if we just wish that we could live a different way, then that's not gonna take us where we wanna go. That's not gonna bring the benefit into our life that I know you and I probably want. It's gonna lead to us being without. It's gonna lead to poverty. And Jesus made it really, really clear, guys, that if we're gonna follow after him, there's gonna be this idea of a cost that goes with that. Look at Matthew 10. 38 and 39, here's what he says. But whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This idea of taking up our cross and following him, there's some effort, there's some, some pain that would go with that. There's some cost that would go with that. But then verse 39, whoever finds their life is gonna lose it, which sounds scary. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And so Jesus is clear that if we're following after him, there's going to be this idea of cost. But then just look, next chapter, Matthew 11, he said though that with that, that's not a burden. Following after him and paying that price and that cost and, and being disciplined, that's not a burden that brings, that brings life to you. Look at this, 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. So look at my total life, Live like I did, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And look at this, verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the first reminder that I want to give you guys is this, is that disciplines are a bridge. They're not a burden. Like that, that, that's the way that we're going to have to think about living like Jesus and being and living this disciplined lifestyle. That this disciplined discipline lifestyle, it's not a burden. This is a bridge that is going to get us to where we want to go. Because I bet every single one of us wants to live like Jesus. Like we want to be able to act like Jesus in those big moments of life. That, that's a destination that all of us want. 
And what we've got to understand is then living like him in the small moments is what's going to lead us to be able to live and act like him in the big moments. And that is a bridge. The disciplines are a bridge that's going to get us to that destination. It's not this burden and this thing that's just going to make us boring and no fun and constrained. It's something that's going to bring a tremendous amount of benefit into our life. So I grew up in the Maryland area, just thinking about bridges. I grew up in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, Manassas, Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. And so we would go on vacation a lot in Ocean City, Maryland, or Rehoboth Beach, which I think was just right at the, the border of Maryland and Delaware. So we'd go to the East Coast, the Maryland-Delmarva Peninsula Coast. And every time you drove from the D.C. area to get over to the coast, you had to go over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. And so you had to go over the Chesapeake Bay. And so this Chesapeake Bay Bridge, I don't know if anybody's ever been on that bridge or heard about that bridge. It is uh, 4.3 miles long. It's one of the top 10 longest bridges over a continuous body of water in the world. In the world. It was built in the 50s. When it was built in the 50s, I think it was the longest or one of the top five longest. There's been some other ones that have been built since then. I think we got a picture of it. So this is just a a little picture. It it looks like it just kind of drops off there in the middle. Uh, but it, you don't die. Uh, that actually is a little tunnel so that those, those freighters can go, can go over that. But this is an incredibly long bridge, and you think like 4.3 miles, that is a long time to be on a bridge. And so I used to go to the beach with my buddy Mike and, uh, and his family, because his family owned a place there in, in high school. Sometimes I'd go with them, and we'd be in the car with Mike's mom, and Mike's mom was not a fan of that bridge. That, that was not a lot of fun for her to go on that bridge. She would get nervous on that bridge. And I remember, you know, Mike being a, a punk would like make fun of his mom and be like, oh, mom, it is so far down there, you know, like we're gonna die. And she was just holding on to that, holding on to that steering wheel as we would go. But, but the thing is, so even though she wasn't a fan of going across that bridge, she did it and she did it gladly because she knew that going across that bridge was gonna get her to where she wanted to go. It was worth it to go across that bridge because she wanted to go to the beach. She wanted to get to her condo. She wanted to spend time reading a book on the beach. She wanted to watch her, her kids having fun on that beach. And so she was, she was gladly willing to drive across that bridge so that, because she knew that it was going to get her where she wanted to be. And so these disciplines, these are a bridge to get us where we want to be. They are not this burden. They're not this burden. So let's look at a second one here. Second one, let's look at Proverbs 16, 32. Better a patient person than a warrior. Excuse me, one with self-control than one who takes a city. So better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. I, I read that proverb and I find that so helpful and so relieving, especially, especially here in, in like in our watermark culture, in our culture that can be pretty macho, pretty cowboy, pretty go big or go home, right? This culture that likes to, to, to build up these warriors that are gonna go take a city. I find this proverb to be pretty relieving. Just this reminder, this reminder that sometimes it's better to be patient than it is to be this passionate warrior. What's better, what's better is to be self-controlled than to be somebody that can go and attack and take over a city. And so here's how this applies to us as we're looking at the disciplines. What you and I need to remember is this. What's gonna keep us on the bridge? What's gonna keep us living this disciplined lifestyle? What's gonna keep you and I living like Jesus lived in the small moments so we can act like him in the big moments? What's gonna keep us on that? On that path is patience, not passion. Patience, not passion. 
God's not up there waiting for us just to have these tremors of passion, and that's, that's what's going to be the only thing that's going to keep us uh, 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 you know, moving in that direction and going after this. Like, I'm not looking for you guys this morning to not use the doors when you leave here. Like, just to be so passionate that you just run through the walls and you just run through out of here and you just get in your car and you go be this warrior that's going to take over the city. That's not what I'm looking for, and I don't think that's what God's looking for when it comes to us living like Jesus lived. The thing that's going to keep you and I on the bridge, the thing that's going to keep us moving in that direction is patience. Patience, not passion. Here's what it makes me think of. I, I think of this book that I read a few years ago when I was leading the Money Wise Ministry. Anybody ever read that book? I think it came out in the 90s called The, uh, the Millionaire Next Door. Anybody read that book? Okay, a handful of you guys. So here's basically the, the premise of that book was two college professors set out to study the average American millionaire. They had all their preconceived notions of what the lifestyle of the average American millionaire was going to be like. They thought it was going to be big homes, expensive cars, uh, custom-made suits, fancy restaurants, crazy vacations, like a lot of bling, all this kind of stuff. They thought it was going to, the average American millionaire was going to have this really crazy uh, lifestyle full of luxury. And what they realized is they got in there and they studied all of these these uh, average millionaires, and they just started looking at what actually was going on in their life. Their findings were shocking. And what they realized is that the reason these people were millionaires was not, not because they went and spent all their money. The reason they were millionaires is because they didn't spend their money. And, and, and they looked at the lifestyle things, and it's, it's just really, it's really interesting, the facts of the average American millionaire. The average home value of, of the American millionaire, the average home value is $320,000. And they've been in that home for over 20 years. The most common brand car that the average American millionaire drives, you know what the brand is? Ford. Ford. How many of y'all drive Fords? Those might be the rich guys right there, all right? So you're, you're at North Park or driving down the road. I mean, you can look at the fancy ones, but you see the Ford Fusion drive by, you just go, that's probably a millionaire right there. All right, so the Ford is the number one car that the average American millionaire drives. They never get or rarely get custom-made suits. Most of the time, they buy them off the rack from like JCPenney or Marshalls or TJ Maxx. The number one watch brand that they wear is a Seiko. I mean, it's just all these facts going on and on and on and just realizing these guys and these, these families, they act nothing like we thought they acted. You know what businesses they own? They're not like Elon Musk. The, the guy that owns Tesla, the, the car, it's not like, you know, that guy uh, is just living this fantasy where his companies are, he's got the fastest electric car that the world has ever known or maybe ever will know. He thinks we're gonna inhabit Mars one day and so he like spends all these monies on these rockets that blow up a couple of weeks ago, hello? And, uh, and then, you know, his other company is trying to create these, these battery packs for our homes so that we don't have to be on the grid. Like that, it, it, the, the average million American, uh, American millionaire is not owning businesses that are really cool like that, they own janitorial services, uh, they're contractors, plumbers, uh, they, they, own, uh, they own these businesses that maybe the world will look at and go, yeah, I don't, I don't really wanna do that. You know what, what they are? They're not, they're not warriors, they're not ones who take down a city, they're patient and they're self-controlled and that brings them benefit if, if we think that that is benefit. And so what you and I, the thing that's going to keep us on this path, the thing that's going to keep us disciplined is not, is not just all this passion. What's going to keep us in the name of this game is patience. I, I think this, guys, hear this. I think that you and I would be shocked 
at how much progress we'd make with small, consistent deposits of time over a long period of time. Something we say around here at Watermark a lot, we ripped it off from somebody else. I think Eugene Peterson, the guy that wrote the message, wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's countercultural, it, but it's also it's biblical. I think if you and I just woke up every day and we just put one foot in front of the other and just said, hey, I'm going to be patient, I think we'd be surprised when we look up a month later, two months later, a year later, a decade later to look back and go, whoa. It didn't feel like all these crazy moments. It didn't feel like I was running through walls the whole time. I was just, I was patient and I was self-controlled and I can't believe, I can't believe how different I am than I was a few years ago or a few months ago. So the first reminder is we gotta, we gotta remember that these, these disciplines, they are a bridge, not a burden. The thing that's gonna keep us on that bridge is patience, not passion. And let's look at this last one. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses nine through 11. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you, this is the the psalmist writing, uh, speaking this to God. I seek you, God, with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What I love about this little passage here in Psalm 119 is that, that the psalmist wants to live the disciplined lifestyle, wants to walk across that bridge, wants to be patient. And the reason, the reason the psalmist wants to be disciplined, the reason the psalmist wants to read scripture and hide scripture, memorize scripture in his heart, the reason he wants to do that is not because he views it as a responsibility. The reason he wants to do that is because he knows that's gonna cultivate his relationship with God. So we need to remember that this is a bridge. This is not a burden. We need to remember that it's patience, not passion. And the third reminder, the third thing that we need to remember is that the reason we're doing all this, the motivation for all of this, is this is a, a, about our relationship, not about responsibility. I mean, some of you may be sitting there just going, okay, so why, why did Jesus do this stuff? Like, why, why did he uh, abstain from eating food for an extended period of time? Why did he fast? Why did he pray? Why did he go and be alone? Why did he read God's word? Why did he try to memorize God's word? Like, why did he live his life like that? And so therefore, why should I live my life like that? And the reason that Jesus did that and the reason that you and I should should seek to do that is because Jesus knew, and, and I think guys, we know it too, that that's the way to cultivate a relationship. The way to cultivate a relationship is with steady, small, consistent deposits over a long period of time. That's the way to do it. Our relationship with God is like every relationship that we have. If we wanna have a good relationship with God, if we wanna have a healthy relationship with God, and you and I, we're gonna have to do the exact same thing that we do to have a good relationship with our wife, a good relationship with our kids, a good relationship with coworkers, family, and friends. And here, the secret to a, to a strong relationship, the secret to a healthy relationship, if we want quality, the way you get there is with quantity. That, that's it. You, you get a strong relationship. You cultivate a good and healthy relationship with quantity of time. That's what gives you a quality relationship. And we know this. I mean, we know, I mean, those of you guys that are married, like imagine if you went home today and you said, you said to your wife, hey, I got a new idea on how we're gonna spend time together. I wanna front load in the beginning of the month. So I'm gonna spend 48 hours in a row with you. We can, we can talk, it'll all be face-to-face. I won't turn on the television, I'll turn my phone off. You get 48 hours in a row of my time in the beginning of the month, and then the other 28 days, I'm out. Like, I'm just gonna do whatever I wanna do. 
And your wife would be like, I don't think I'm into that. And you'd be like, hey, 48 is better than, than an average month. On, on average, you get like 40. So I'm giving you eight more hours than I would normally give you. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that front-loading? And there's nobody would want that. If our wife came home and said that to us, we wouldn't want that. Our kids wouldn't want that. Our friends wouldn't want that. Coworkers wouldn't want that. Family wouldn't want that. We know this is true. We know that the way to cultivate a relationship is with small deposits of time over a long period of time. And that's, that's why we're doing this. These key relationships have to be consistent. They have to be consistent. And so you and I, we're going to stay on this bridge and we're going to be patient. And we're going to do this. We're going to seek to be disciplined because this is about cultivating our relationship with God. It's not a responsibility. So here, here's what I want to close with, just to close our time together. I've got this video of this news story that happened a few years ago. Some of you guys have probably seen this before, but I think it really fits with uh, really well with all of this that we're talking about this morning. So I think it's about two minutes long. So let's go ahead and watch this video clip, and then I'll have a few comments. Everyone involved in a terrifying crash at a New York gas station earlier this month is alive, thanks to an off-duty police officer's bravery and quick thinking. A car slams into a pump after the driver blacks out. It just so happens the guy filling his tank was an off-duty police officer. John Vescio managed to pull the driver from his car amid the flames. WPIX reports Vescio, a senior state police investigator, was pumping gas into his unmarked police car when another vehicle came barreling into the gas station and hit one of the pumps. Vescio was injured in the crash when the gas pump fell on top of him. But that didn't stop him from springing into action to save the 69-year-old driver who ABC reports had a medical issue and was trapped unconscious inside the car. From the initial impact, it was so fast, it wasn't really much of a thinking process. It was more of a reactionary process. I, I don't know if you could say it's, it's just training that kicked in. And that training kicked in just in time. As you can see in surveillance footage taken from the gas station, Vessio dragged the driver to safety seconds before a ball of fire engulfed the area. The Journal News reports once Vessio saved the driver and warned others at the station to stay back, he ran back to his car to retrieve a weapon and ammunition that were still inside. Luckily, all of his ammo was accounted for and didn't explode from the blaze. Four other people were also hurt in the scary incident, but thankfully no one was killed. And now Vessio is being hailed as a hero for his courageous actions. WCBS obtained a news release from a state police captain who was at the scene. Despite senior investigator Vessio's own injuries, he remained focused and committed to saving the life of the operator of that Toyota. If not for his swift response, the situation could have turned much worse. NBC reports an investigation into the crash is still underway. Thanks for watching. I'm Megan Judy. Love that. Love that quote. That big moment, that big moment, he didn't attribute it just to being awesome. He didn't attribute that big moment to, oh, I watched some guys on TV and I saw that that's what they do in big moments. He didn't, he didn't say, oh, I watched another officer and I saw that, oh, in big moments, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to run towards all of that. No, that's not the reason he was able to help that, that man that was going through that issue. The reason that he was able to help that, what he attributed it to was his training. It's because he had been living a certain way. He had been living a certain way in the small moments. He'd been training himself that when that big moment faced him, he was able to do what it is that he wanted to do. And so for you and I, if we wanna act like Jesus in the big moments, then we're gonna have to live like him in all of the small moments as well. Because here's the deal, guys. The deal is this, is that in this culture that we live in right now, right now, 2016 in the DFW area, there's people's lives that are crashing all over the place. All over the place. 
And God and his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy, his plan A to save those people from, from these fiery lives, from these crashes, his plan is to use us. Like that, that's what he wants to do. He wants to use people like you and I, he wants to use men like you and I to be able to go into these situations and be God's man in those situations. And to be able to point people towards God, point people towards truth, pull them out of the wreck and the, the muck and the mire that they're in, point them towards Jesus so that they can be lifted out uh, of this domain of darkness that they're in and placed into the kingdom of his son. And Jesus wants to use us. And so you and I, we've got this great opportunity that we can train, that we can seek to live like Jesus in all the small moments so that when we face these big moments, we, we can be God's men in those situations. So there is a huge need in our culture for us to train, to live godly, so that we can be prepared for those moments. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us that we can do that. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you, uh, you modeled for us not just, not just these amazing miracles and these uh, set the bar so high of things that we could, we could never do, but you, you modeled for us, Jesus, a way to live in the day in and the day out, a way to train, a way to prepare ourselves, a way to uh, cultivate our relationship with you so that we could be your man when these big moments face us. And so God, I pray for myself and all the, my friends in this room, the other men in this room, that we will, uh, that we will be on that bridge of discipline God, I pray that you will help us to be patient with ourselves and patient with one another. And I pray that you will remind us and, and help us to remember that this is about cultivating our relationship with you. This isn't a burden. This isn't a responsibility. But this is something that we get to do. And God, I pray that you will use us in this world. I pray that you will use us and that our training will kick in and that we can forgive. We can turn the other cheek. We can go the extra mile. We can love and we can lead in a way that Jesus did. And so that's our prayer and that's what we ask. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.